0: Welcome to the commentary magazine daily podcast. Today is Friday, January 29th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of commentary with me as always, senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So, uh, in New York state, uh, where I live and where Abe lives, um, Our uh, self-sainted governor, uh, Andrew Cuomo, has just been dealt one of the most savage blows any sitting politician has ever been dealt by a report uh, from the attorney general of the state of New York's office. The attorney general is a, a Brooklyn politician named Letitia James. Um, the report was on the conduct of nursing homes in the handling of the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, and what was found. And uh, in this report, uh, along the way, um, in a finding that was not particularly highlighted by the report, because Tish James is a Democrat, Cuomo is a Democrat. Cuomo is, of course, an uncommonly vindictive a Democrat who is happy to go to war with people in his party whom he doesn't like. And so uh, Tish James is playing with fire here, but apparently her investigators uh, uncovered the fact that the the death toll from nursing home patients, uh, which was already terrifyingly high and the subject of much discussion over the course of 2020, was in fact undercounted by as much as 55%, meaning that Uh, the March 25th, 2020 order uh, from the state's health department that said let back into nursing homes people who have been hospitalized uh, for COVID, uh, so basically so we can clear up the hospital beds that might be needed in case there's an overflow, you must let them back in. Uh, the guidance doesn't didn't, doesn't actually explicitly say you must let them back in, but it basically says let them back in. And there was, of course, a financial incentive for these nursing homes to do so uh, because they're they're paid by the patient. Um, the death toll from nursing homes may be fifty five percent higher than was originally reported. Uh, of course, the Entirety of the Cuomo uh, sale effort was this idea that he had done an uncommonly competent job at handling it, communicating about it, dealing with it. And in fact, what seems clear now b- between the lines of the report is that um, they understood very quickly that they had made a colossal epic blunder and attempted to cover it up. By uh, creating this fiction that the state's health commissioner Howard uh, Doogie Hauser Zucker, Howard Zucker being the model for Doogie Hauser, uh, uh, says, well, you know what? Um, here's the thing: like uh, we haven't, we didn't under understate the number of people overall in the state who died from COVID nineteen. We were just counting people who died in nursing homes at the nursing home as having died in nursing homes and not counting the ones who had been transported from nursing homes to hospitals as having died at nursing homes, only that they had died in hospitals. Uh, So uh, they didn't misrepresent the overall number. uh, And then the health department that he runs yesterday afternoon then just sort of like played a little game with its numbers and increased the number of people who would have been said to have died in nursing homes by 4,800. Um, so Andrew Cuomo of course published a book called American crisis a couple of months ago about how fantastically he had handled the nursing home crisis. And in the course of this book, there is a section in which he says the following and paraphrasing, uh, Republicans decided they wanted to do misdirection from Trump's mishandling of the virus, and so they decided to blame Democratic governors. And this, and 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 then actually mentioned the New York Post, the paper I write for, and my colleague Michael Goodwin, as somehow having taken direction from the Republican Party uh, to misdirect the uh, public's ire. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, actually this was despicable. Imagine that you're somebody whose mother or father has died, you know, in a nursing home and you're wondering if you should have done more and you're being told to blame a politician. How despicable is that? Well, as I said at the end of my column today, you want despicable look in the mirror, Andrew Cuomo. Um, I, 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 people write people's political epitaphs all the time. It's always a mistake. Uh, But um, uh, this is a a really startling revelation uh, of a kind – it was bad enough – when we thought that 6,000 people had died in nursing homes, not that 10,000 people had died in nursing homes.
1: Well, and and there's something else here that, that, you know, Mm -hmm. I remember the mainstream media absolutely having a field day with Donald Trump and his administration for trying to boast about his his, uh, inauguration numbers. And it was ridiculous, obviously. You know, he was doing it for his ego. And this was a story for weeks, and it's still brought up sometimes about, as an example of, of Trump's narcissism. Okay, that's fine. But we were talking about a moment in the pandemic where information sharing about what strategies were working and what strategies were not working would have been hugely helpful to other people in other states. So the fact that they pretty quickly noticed this death increase and just tried to hide it is extremely bad as an ethical and moral position to take. And at the same time, the mainstream media, you know, which was was treated Cuomo with kid gloves and, as you said, then elevated him to Emmy-nominated sainthood, was at the same special time- Emmy yeah, yes, special, special Emmy winner. Yes, special Emmy winner. Special Emmy winner. Special Emmy winner at for the same time was attacking space. a governor whose policy towards nursing homes in Florida, Ron DeSantis in Florida, was extremely effective at protecting that vulnerable population. And he was mocked for it. They were, they were sort of making fun of him for- preventing people from visiting nursing homes. Oh, they're denying this, you know, human contact that they need. So there is to me a real, not only during a pandemic should we all be on the same page trying to save as many lives as possible, but the fact that he was trying to hide his mistake while while endorsing this idea that the people who were doing it right were somehow morally culpable.
2: John, correct me if I'm wrong, but the report, as as my understanding of it is, um, doesn't allege exactly that the cover-up was deliberately deceptive, right? But you can infer it from from the It
0: does not – it it offers no opinion about why there is a discrepancy in the numbers. It merely says that uh, they did a survey of 62 nursing homes found in almost every case an undercount of the number of people who had been resident in nursing homes who ended up dying from COVID either at the nursing home or having been transported to a hospital where, where they died. And that extrapolating from that 62 to the 600 some nursing homes in the state, they came up with this undercount of around 54%. How it happened, why it happened, when it happened, very little is said. The report is written in a very, um, slightly unclear manner uh clearly tish james is uncomfortable or her people are uncomfortable with the fact that they are you know they they found something that is uh going to create a political controversy with uh the politician who next to donald trump is the single most vindictive politician in the united states and uh, and and the ugliest and uh, in terms of his uh, almost infinite capacity to hold a grudge and take revenge, and she has put herself on the line here. She is not anybody that I particularly respect. I, she didn't write the report, so um, uh, I don't think we can. You know, we can presume that you know she she is the full author. She ca- it's couched is my point. We it's up to us to try to make sense out of this. I would say, um, so, uh, and that's what that's what you have to do here. How how is there an undercount of this size? Uh, well, there's an undercount of this or, size. On a matter of controversy when, in fact, news reports as as early as August were 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 zeroing in on the fact that this March 25th order to send patients back from. Emergency rooms sick with COVID, two nursing homes in order to clear beds up had had a
3: deleterious effect on the nursing. Oh, homes. I'm sorry, it's far earlier than August. We were writing; I was writing about it for our website in May. Um, this was known. You didn't have to be a consumer of right wing media to know about this sort of thing. There was <clears throat> quite obviously the the directive had this effect because it was producing the bodies that we knew about, the thousands of bodies that we knew about. There was a ProPublica investigation in May that found officials in Albany had ceased communications with New York City Department of Health officials. They were not providing them with case counts. They didn't tell them how many beds were available in the state and the ventilator counts. Um, The March 25th directive has been uh, scrutinized by August. It was thoroughly scrutinized. I mean, wrote for this, wrote on this subject in July and April. So it was pretty well known at this point. Beyond that, there was the subway issue where he, you know, he went and he did this big thing, closing down the subways or closing down 24 hour operations on April 30th, which was a month after a working paper at MIT had blamed the subways for the conspicuous spread of the virus within New York City. Um, and the excess death totals which again, there was some investigation from local news outlets, the extent to which Albany had directed people to stay home, don't go to the hospital, you know, open up telehealth, sure, but whatever you do, stay out of a hospital room. And the result was a series of, uh, of excess deaths attributable, not to COVID, but the conditions around COVID. All of this was investigated rather thoroughly. So it makes, you know, the, the press was complicit in this, de- deliberately complicit in this, up to and including, you know, today's target of everyone's Antipathy um, and mockery, CNN's Chris Salissa, who published last night an article headlined, quote, Andrew Cuomo's COVID 19 performance, may have been less stellar than it seemed. <laughs> um, I, I, dated January 28, 2021. I mean, it's laughable and inexcusable, but there's a, a complicity on the part of the media here to create a narrative around this guy, which you've said a million times and is undeniable at this point that it served to create a foil. That contrasted favorably with Donald Trump. It was a storytelling device, but a blood-soaked one.
2: Well, you know what? They don't need an anti-Trump anymore. That's 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 one thing that
0: that uh, may not be there to, to help them out. I mean, uh, look. The, the simple fact of the matter is that the uh, Cuomo uh, Cuomo as the anti-Trump was a a, a, a useful play, uh, and he himself. Saw it as a useful play. And then, uh, as is true of uh, every con man, shyster, and charlatan in the course of his con mannery, uh, he began to believe his own uh, bullshit and started acting as though he were the savior uh, of America rather than the person who presided over the worst, uh, the state that had the worst death toll for the coronavirus, um, whose admittedly uh very complicated decision making um and I, I say in my piece today in the new york post you know there but for the grace of god go anyone he found himself in the middle of a of a horrible
3: set of hobson's choices that charity is, is is important it's very important to be charitable yeah. in when we're looking back on march Right, because in, in March, in March, May, they but you've had a counter-narrative in places like Florida and yeah. places like Georgia that were pilloried by the press. I mean, it's one thing for the grifter to yeah, believe but, his but own way, line. Way, it's another but, thing for everybody in the media yeah. to start playing invisible instruments along with him. Right, right. But there are two things going
0: on. So in March, you have uh, uh, the virus is is running rampant in New York State. Yeah. Uh, You have this fear that the healthcare system is going to be overwhelmed, that there aren't enough hospital beds. They're setting up the Javits Center, the convention center of New York City as a possible overflow hospital. They're bringing the boat up from Norfolk to serve as a floating hospital. They're looking at building a, a tent hospital in Central Park to be an overflow hospital uh, there's a terror that we don't have enough ventilators, though it turned out that ventilators were among the uh, inadvertent killers of people with COVID, not, not saviors of people with COVID. Uh, and all of this is going on, and there is this fear that there aren't going to be enough hospital beds, and Cuomo has to make a decision, which is uh, I think basically everybody who was in the hospital with COVID who is, seems to be getting better needs to be sent back where they came from so we can clear the bed. Okay, So he makes this decision. He's not looking to kill anybody. He's not looking to make people sick in nursing homes, all of that. He had to make a choice and he made it. And that is where the charitable interpretation has to come in. Where it gets ugly is not just what Noah said, which is that then people go at other states that pursued other measures, but that he knew, they knew, I'm sure they knew very quickly that this decision had had a deleterious and horrifying consequence, and rather than being sadder but wiser, reversing field, letting it all hang out about what happened and saying, you know, we had to make these choices, he doubled down on his own virtue and doubled down on attacking people who did not make the mistake that he made. Well, and that is why he is going to go to hell. And And I don't mean he's going to go to hell because he killed anybody. I mean, he allowed, knowingly, it appears, allowed uh, this false story... Uh, to be promulgated to uh, enhance his own reputation and to attack the reputation of others who did right when he did wrong.
1: So, they, and there, and there's the, there's an interesting moment in the cycle of Cuomo self congratulation with regard to to COVID that we shouldn't forget. And that's in July when he issued his artwork, the poster about climbing the COVID mountain, which included such uh, acknowledgments as "Follow the facts." This was written in quotes on the side, and you know, boyfriend Cliff, and all this other stuff. Dramatically missing from anything in that climbing the COVID mountain was a single elderly person, single elderly resident of New York. They were nowhere to be found in his self-congratulatory scheme. At that point, they did. As you said, John, they knew that this policy hadn't worked, and yet they were still claiming to follow the facts. We knew factually that there were other ways to do things that would save lives. He didn't, he chose not to do that. And so I don't, yes, there is all these morally bad decisions that were made once they had the, the facts in front of them, but it's the cycle of congratulation that, that was really, usually that just annoys people like us. But in this case, it was, it's so deeply reprehensible given that people's lives were at risk while he was, you know, kind of trying to find a way to, to elevate his political profile.
2: And also, you know, to, to get to John's point, this cuts um, to the heart of uh, what uh, Cuomo built himself up on. Um, as as you said, you know anyone can make, uh, especially early on, uh, the wrong decision in this in this uh, crisis. Um, what is Cuomo getting a, an Emmy for? What is Cuomo's great? Uh, source of of pride uh, over over the course of his of of this year, it's that he's this great communicator that he levels with the people that he's there to tell them to keep them up on things that are happening so he's 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 it's not you know uh, out of control and that you know he 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 violated that that very trust between himself and the citizens by covering up this very important
0: fact. Right. And and not only will history judge him harshly, but I, th- I I think we're just at the beginning of the meltdown of his reputation. Um, that's that's where I would that's where I would go with this and what I, I would expect. But here's,
3: there's a real there's going to be a hurdle there. And it's the Chris Salissa problem. No one's going to want to review their performance over the course of 2020 and the the cover they gave this guy, the fatuous coverage he was, he was given the soft coverage and the, the foil that they created for him. There's an investment in his personality called a personality around him on the part of members of the press that they're, unless they have some sort of an off ramp from people like us in the form of, you know, amnesty, (laughs) you can just, you know, forgiven for your, for your past, uh, past, uh, you know, um, efforts to laud this guy and create a personality around him. But I don't know if, I don't know if anybody's going to be willing to engage in that bargain.
0: Andrew Cuomo is a was a uniquely ill suited figure to playing to being this you know hero with the white hat. He is a very complicated political player. He is a very effective political player. He is also a monster. He is a very ugly, very personal, very vindictive, uh, very hostile, uh, incredibly aggressive. There's a reason that he and Trump went toe to toe. They have much in common in terms of their personalities and their approach. It is all naked alpha aggression. And um, and people who have dealt with him, who have dealt with him over time, who have reported on him, who have worked with him, they all know who he is. And he somehow transcended that uh, because the country wanted a hero. Um, But the heroism was false. Not only for policy reasons that we've gone into that don't just deal with the nursing home issue, but his inconstancy in dealing with cl- closings and openings and lockdowns and various other things, uh, but because he's a goon and a and a, and a jerk and an ass, um, but he does many things very well. He's a builder. We're we're getting a new LaGuardia Airport will be done next year. It's kind of magnificent. He built a new Tappan Zee Bridge, necessary replacement for a bridge that was collapsing. He got it done. He gets things done. He is a very strong and effective political player, but he is a very complicated person. And being a, a straight-talking hero rather than an impressive backroom, I'm going to kill you and kill your family if you don't do what I want you to do player, which is what he is, that does not fit him, and how he continues to wear that mantle without his brother, whom I like, uh, his brother Chris, playing his blocking tackle and his brother's network serving as his PR firm, which they're going to not do anymore, I don't really know.
1: So basically, he sounds like he's he's Don Corleone when he practices politics, but he wants to be thought of as Michael Corleone going legit, right? Like he just he doesn't he's both. And I mean, there's well, also the yeah. whole the whole issue of his relationship with his father's political legacy, that is, you know, a book in itself. Yeah. But
0: no, but I mean, he's Don Corleone on the one hand. I mean, he's sort of Luca Brasi on the one hand. And he's K Corleone on the other. That's He wants to be Kay Corleone, but in fact, he's
1: Luca Brasi. No, no, it's not liking, by the way. No, it's not liking our Godfather references. He's frowning.
0: <laughs> I don't even know. Abe? I, uh, I just thought okay. of him as Sonny.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, but remember, Sonny was a bad Don. You remember that? Sonny yes. was a bad Don. He's not a bad Don. Right. If what you're looking for is to get a subway finished or to build a bridge or to build a, or to get a train haul done or to get this state is going to have profited from his being governor without question. Uh, but as a human being, he's garbage. and as a as a hero leader, uh, we were handed a bill of goods here that uh, we're going to have to unravel and is going to be unraveled for him. As we are talking about COVID and the history of COVID and the record of COVID and all of that, I want to remind you guys to go to uh, the iTunes store, to go to Stitcher, to go to Google Play and download Dan Seymour's podcast, Post-Corona, the only podcast I know dedicated to this question of how society and America are going to look and act and behave and do business in the wake of the virus. Dan's new guest having uh, following uh, Neil Ferguson uh, and uh, Rehan Salam and various other people, is Scott Gottlieb of 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 AI, who is head of the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, Scott, of course, one of the uh, most quoted and most noted, Uh, public commentators on on covid and uh he has a lot of very interesting things to say on this podcast among them uh that what we think is going to go on with this question of how many vaccine doses there are going to be available to people um we're looking through the wrong end of the telescope that the supply chain may not be the problem it actually may be a demand side problem that there'll be, there might be more than enough vaccine to go around. In part because there is going to be real resistance in taking it, and obviously with the latest news about the less effective potency of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which is yet to come to market, but which is, uh, but which uh, has now been reported on as not being as effective as Moderna and Pfizer. Uh, This is now going to raise other questions about that. So that's one thing he goes into. And then he also goes into the interesting question of what are the national security implications of what the world has discovered about the world's largest economy and what and how it can be interrupted and screwed around with by uh, a a pathogen or a contagion and what what we need to defend against going forward. So that's Scott Gottlieb on the post Corona podcast with Dan Sinor, go download it, go listen to it. Um, It will enlighten you. It will enrage you. It will frighten you. It will inspire you. And it really is a must listen in your podcast library. Uh, So moving on from people who are somehow weirdly uh, correcting the record uh, without correcting the record, not that Cuomo and Howard Zucker corrected the record that was corrected for them. Um, uh, Christine pointed out uh, this morning a an interesting uh, article uh, about how, boy, there's been a lot of misinformation about COVID and schools and how dangerous COVID is and all of that. And people really need to stop so that schools can open because it's really been terribly bad. And this article is by whom, Christine, and where is it published? It's-
1: with apologies in advance for the jackhammering going on near my uh, house next door, um, city living, uh, Derek Thompson in the Atlantic. And the Atlantic, as as our listeners know, and as Noah has done extremely good work uh, pointing out every time they go into hysterics about COVID, which was often, it's been one of the leading magazines to kind of keep the fear, the fear mongering about COVID on high, on, as high as possible Particularly, they've, they've, they've also done this with schools. And now as we see a kind of change in public mood about uh, schools remaining closed. And which, of course, does tie into the change of administration. Uh, They've come out with this piece that says, wow, gee, look at all of this accumulated evidence, much of which we've had for months, (laughs) that clearly shows that this is bad, particularly for elementary school children. And we've got to follow the science. And he he kind of very gently blames the media. So, you know, he's taking some responsibility on the part of his own profession um, and politicians for for not giving us a clear path. There was very little to say about the one group that we all know to be extremely defiant in the face of the facts about COVID and schools, and that's the teachers' unions. Um, but it was interesting to me. That signals to me a broader shift in mainstream media perceptions about uh, how we're handling the virus in schools. It's a good sign. Look, I'm i am I, I'm not an I told you so person in this case. I'm very much a welcome to the fold. A lot of us have been saying this for a while. It's a good sign. Um but I do think that uh, sort of giving themselves a little slap on the wrist might be a little too gentle given, particularly about schools, the kind of fear-mongering and, and kowtowing to the teachers' unions that we've seen in the mainstream media for almost a year now.
0: Okay, I think you're being too generous because <laughs> this piece ends with a, look, the media went too far, but um, I think it is unquestionable that in the world of the elite media, not television and not sort of like newspapers with six, you know million subscribers, But in the world of elite media, uh, the place to turn for your COVID, the world is ending porn has been the Atlantic, uh, where Derek Thompson is a senior contributor. And I believe an editor, um, uh, who was it? Amanda Mull who wrote that piece saying Georgia is experimenting with mass murder just to refer back to, uh, (laughs) heroic governor versus the evil governor who isn't locking down enough, uh, uh, Edward, uh, Wong, um, various other writers, uh, uh, who have, who have promulgated a, who have been the chicken littles of COVID, not just because obviously we needed to take this pandemic with deadly seriousness, but with this notion that basically all of civilization needed to fold itself up, put itself, you know, in a, in a jail cell and stay there, um, you know, until the last, uh, the last strand of mRNA uh, was healed,
2: but uh, also as the as the piece in the Atlantic indicates, um, they were chicken littles as a kind of response to Donald Trump. I mean, uh, right? Because as uh, I, don't, I think it's an insufficient um, explanation. I mean, or I think it's a it's a poor justification because what they're really talking about is a kind of Trump derangement syndrome. Um, so, I mean, so any, anything that you know came out of the White House that that was positive or um less than apocalyptic had to be countered and and jumped on and buried
3: i've been kind of obsessive about this so like i I, there are targets over there that do deserve to be pilloried Derek thompson maybe not one of them he's been skeptical where skepticism is due for example about COVID theater hygiene theater he was one of the first to come out and and demonstrate why the theatrics around this were kind of obnoxious people like amanda mull though do deserve to be um, singled out um, because when they're not um, being maximalist about COVID, you know, uh, my favorite piece of hers was, you know, th- this doesn't make any sense. The logic of pandemic restrictions make no sense when you can go and eat in a restaurant, but you can't go eat in a restaurant, or rather you can go eat in a restaurant, but you can't have Thanksgiving with your family. That doesn't make any sense. What would make sense is that you shouldn't go and eat in a restaurant either. Um, but, ne- and then she turns around and says, man, the psychological maladies associated with lockdown are just crippling and terrifying. None of us can have interpersonal relationships anymore. And what are the long-term implications of this? Um, but we're, we, we see plenty of other outlets doing the precise same thing. The new um, push is going to be around mutated strains, um, which we don't know the extent to which they they are um, can be blocked by the same proteins that are in the MRA, uh, mRNA pr- uh, proteins that are in the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine. We don't really know. Some are, so maybe some aren't. Have this Brazilian strain is kind of terrifying. The South African strain, maybe, maybe not. There's going to be a strain out of Zimbabwe. Who knows? It's all going to be, you know, ad hoc as we go forward. And that's in the Washington Post today. I mean, so it's not, it's not as though we can single out the Atlantic and say, oh, if only we could, you know, draw, you know, dig a moat around this place, there would be some rationale, uh, a, a rational discussion around this. Um, rational discussion isn't what's desired. It's goalpost moving in service to favored constituencies. Like yeah, but ter-
0: yeah, but in relation to the Trump derangement sy- syndrome game, th- this is where the rubber is going to meet the road as we go forward. And we'll see how much the disaster porn... Uh, survives um, the needs and political wants of the new administration and the new consensus. Because particularly with the signs that we'll get to in a bit that, you know, uh, Donald Trump and his influence on the Republican Party and the Republican Party's general direction, um, that none of that is going away. Uh, The implicit idea in the mainstream media that um, uh, Biden, it, it is not only life uh saving but uh, democracy saving for biden to be uh as successful as he can possibly be and to have as easy a time as he can possibly have because there there is there's trump and there's marjorie taylor green and there's matt gates and there's this and there's that coming uh you know uh are they ready and still powerful and still ready to take the reins of power again um preaching doom and disaster and horror rather than optimism and the sense that we can get our, we can get through this, be done with it and have huge economic growth and and a great time. Um, The, the incentives to go as dark as possible uh, may not, are are not what they were. And, and uh, although, you know, the world of uh, medical medicalized horror is of course, an old staple, (laughs) you know, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's sells newspapers, uh, to talk about this. So, you know, uh, avoiding it or evading it or, 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 or downplaying it may be something that's hard for, hard for the news sources to, to do. But, um, I think it's pretty clear over the last week that the Biden people already decided that they overplayed their, oh boy, everything is, uh, Whew, it's going to be dark out there. And um, uh, you already saw Ron Klain, uh, the White House chief of flip on his pro teacher. You know, everything needs to be done to make teachers feel safe back to we've got to get those schools open again. Uh, oh, I haven't seen said. that today, yeah, Anthony No, I'm not talking about Fauci. I'm talking no, about Clay yesterday.
1: Clay punted the question. He didn't he yeah. didn't flip. What he said was, Oh, we've really got to encourage localities to do that. Like he totally punted. He's just like Anthony Fauci is
3: saying that the hundred day opening phase is is most likely not going to happen. There will be circumstances that will intervene. Namely, in my view these, the, the narrative around strains, new strains, but something will, they'll find something, something will intervene. They, this administration is far more committed to its constituencies than the science, capital S. Well,
0: when it becomes clear that the pessimistic outlook is retarding uh, uh, the na- nationwide celebration of the change of power. Uh, which is going to happen over the course of the next couple of weeks? I believe you're going to see a flip in tone.
1: There's also there's also something else they're doing, and I just just from personal experience here in Washington D.C., what we're seeing is schools are doing things like hiring proctors. Invite. We're finally they're they're announcing in D.C. We're reopening our schools. No, they're not. What they're doing is hiring non-unionized people to come in and watch the kids continue to do remote learning. And they're going to call that a school reopening because cohorts of 10 or 11 students can sit in a classroom without a live teacher for three hours and then go with masks on and then go home. And they're going to call that school. That's not school. And also the people sending their kids in, which include me, to try it just to get them out of the house because they want to you know, be among other kids their age. Aren't the most vulnerable populations that the schools need to be reaching right now? Those kids are still stuck at home, and many of them have not been logging in for months. So that you'll see that spun as school reopening, it is not school reopening.
2: John, just to to back up to piggyback on your point here about the the you know what's retarding the national celebration. I think the thing is that we're we're still in sort of phase one of this celebration, um, which requires us to focus on the digging out. And the and the fixing of the disaster that was bequeathed, you know, uh, so, you, right. you, so the doom and gloom still is is uh, serves a useful purpose um, that There's- that will be sort of phased out, I think. There is a
3: level of timidity, though, on the part of people who want to take issue with these COVID restrictions, particularly around schools, that um, puts them at a distinct disadvantage. And just as an example here, I just picked up and went to my mailbox this morning and picked up this little free local paper that I get for my town. serves like my town and a couple of towns over, really, you know, minor paper. And the lead story is parents petition to reopen schools. And there's this petition with 900 signatures so far, um, petitioning to reopen schools and really reopen them five days a week, in-person education until 3 p.m., as opposed to what we have now, which is hybridized until 1 p.m., which makes very little sense. Um, but, I, you know, just glancing at the story and dug down to it, and when it talked about the survey, they were quoting, quote, a spokesman for the group who declined to be named. A spokesman for the group, who declined to be named, I've never heard of such a thing. I've never heard of a spokesman who is speaking officially for an organization and an initiative on background. Well, why I mean, and why? Because just, of the fear of consequences.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I don't, I don't begrudge people uh, worrying about that in this current atmosphere where a teacher's union could come after you uh, on social media or I know it's a, it's a very, it's a very uh, serious issue. You know, another place, another place that you can go to find out how all of this is going to play out. Our friends at the Bonson group, David Bonson and his $2.6 billion uh, money under management, 27 professionals, Um, Bi-Coastal taking care of their clients, their money, uh, and their investments uh, with uh, a unique and unparalleled understanding of the interplay between markets and uh, the economy and the stock market and the bond market and uh, new players in Washington with the coming of the Biden administration the role that their old roles are going to play as Janet Yellen moves from having been the head of the Fed to running the Treasury Department. Uh, This week in particular, uh, I found it very illuminating to read David Bonson's DCToday.com, one of the two newsletters that is produced by the Bonson Group, including uh, DividendCafe.com. The DCToday.com was talking about this whole GameStop, Hood, the, um, the the, fee, the fee-less uh, option purchasing system, the role of uh, Reddit, and this whole kind of um, crowdsourced hedge fund behavior and what it might mean going forward um, that, that I found fascinating. It comes in your mailbox every day if you subscribe to the DCToday.com. And I guess later today, uh, the weekly... Dividendcafe.com will come out and provide more uh, information and guidance on that score, as well as David's unique um, uh, fact-based look at uh, COVID and the role that government plays in the uh, laying out of COVID policies, particularly in his home state of California, where uh, he has been uh, systematically exposing the misconduct of the Newsom administration uh, and localities in the handling of this. So please the DC today.com dot the Bonson group, your antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services industry. Give them a look, uh, pick it up, illuminate yourself with it. Uh, okay. So house minority leader, Kevin McCarthy went and kissed the ring of Donald Trump yesterday in Palm Beach, and they apparently agreed jointly that Trump was going to help Republicans win the House and the Senate back in 2022. Uh, and there was a picture of them uh, standing, you know, in the, uh, you know, Hall of Mirrors at Versailles. And, uh, and uh, meanwhile, and Kevin McCarthy, of course, earlier the week had issued a, had had a meeting uh, a backdoor back meeting or on the phone or whatever with his uh, caucus saying, stop attacking each other, let's attack the Democrats. And then, of course, yesterday, while he was meeting with Donald Trump, uh, Matt Gates and Donald Trump Jr., both uh, Gates in person and Donald Trump Jr. Uh, uh, virtually and over the phone, uh, staged a rally to attack Liz Cheney for her perfidy in supporting impeachment. Um so uh, this is all going 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 really great. Meanwhile, we hear from the Capitol police. Uh you know, it's interesting sometimes when crises happen and they the after reports on crises and disasters happen, uh they calm you down because they say that it, they make clear that things maybe weren't as bad as they looked at the beginning, particularly if you saw something, you know, going on uh in media where, you know, it's where you say things like well, you you haven't seen the five minutes before the confrontation or the five minutes after they've cut it, and so it's distorted. The more one finds out about the attack on the Capitol, the worse and more horrifying uh, the information are. It appears that um, more than 100 Capitol policemen were injured in the melee. The the policemen were injured. I think the number is 170 policemen. Uh, Women, uh, there is now video of multiple women being trampled, uh, as the as the out of control mob stormed the building, um, and of course all the stuff that we already uh, do know about, people being hit with steel poles and and I mean it's just the most horrifying thing, and uh, we are moving into a position in which the Republican party and people in the official Republican party are treating this as though it was an event without consequence.
3: Um, McCarthy, so that's uh, the end of my rant. He really is just the wounded caribou in a land of wolves now. I mean, he's just limping along the, the tundra and demonstrating how vulnerable he is by putting his finger up in the wind amid a hurricane and trying to follow whatever, whatever the path of least resistance was. He's shown himself to be pretty weak. He clearly can't control his conference. Um, and I'm persuaded by analysis of uh, Congressman Jim Jordan's decision to bow out of the race for the open Senate seat being vacated by Rob Portman in 2022. If he had had jumped into the race, he probably would have cleared the field. Um, His decision not to means it's a pretty open contest. But it also suggests that he sees a lot of room for improvement in his position within the Republican conference in the House. And the Republican conference in the House is what, five seats short of a majority. So there's reason to invest in, in moving up the ranks of leadership there. And McCarthy is clearly not not strong enough to maintain control of the conference in the majority.
0: Look, it's very simple. If you think, if McCarthy thinks that he can get into bed with Donald Trump and that this is going to save him or save the Republican Party, he does not understand Donald Trump, who was harmful to the Republican Party, helpful to himself, Those 75 million votes that he garnered were helpful to himself, Um, but uh, Trump ends his tenure with the Republicans having lost the House and having uh, lost control of the Senate and having lost control of the White House. He is a party of one. Trump is interested in himself. He will make whatever agreement that he makes on Thursday, January 28th is not an agreement that he will hold to on Saturday, Saturday, January 30th, if it suits his temperament and his uh, desires that day to uh, break it. And because his own supporters uh, largely follow his lead when it comes to what is good or bad for him and for them, uh, he will suffer no consequences from being inconstant and, and, and untrustworthy. Um,
3: and so, there are two competing narratives there, though, that Republicans are, can't really see past. Um, the one is that Republicans do better when Donald Trump is on the ballot, and there's evidence to support that. The other is that Republicans in swing districts that you need to form a majority do better than Donald Trump does when he's on the ballot. Um, those are they are real, you know, data-driven arguments around which of those conditions are more valuable. But the Republican Party has clearly cited. With the former, they're far more concerned that Marjorie Taylor Greene's voters won't show up than the suburban Republican stalwarts in, um, in you know, more traditionally right-leaning districts that aren't outright deep red, uh, which have not shown up or have decided to turn out for Democrats in two consecutive cycles. They're, they're doubling down on Greene's voters. Which is interesting. Because if you think about
0: it, Green is in a district that I think is Trump plus 27. So let's say just for the sake of argument that you alienate her voters, and that number drops down to plus 10 for Republicans from 27. That's still going to be a Republican district. When you lose 40 suburban districts... You gain back a bunch of them in 2020 after 2018. But when you lose 40 suburban districts and the suburb, those suburban districts turn the tide for Biden and win him the presidency, um, what you don't need as a party is to run up crazy numbers in safe districts. That's nice. It's, it may make you feel great that you win by 70% rather than 60% but you only need to win by 50.1%.
1: Well, the, but the short-term payoff for the kinds of candidates like the Marjorie Taylor Greens and on the left the AOCs who have these who have extremely safe seats that they can run up those large margins on is that they they feel themselves to be and in some sense are invulnerable to criticism particularly from their own party leadership and I think we're seeing this is a new trend with these extremely gerrymandered districts where it's a, a very safe seat they create their own platforms, their own audiences that are not even that it might include their constituents, but doesn't rely on them. It's a it's a national platform. And the thing that's frustrating about McCarthy is that he's playing into that development in his own party by not, you know, by being very gent- gentle, gentle on his criticism with with Marjorie Taylor Greene and kind of uh, trying to elide the, the danger that the January 6th uh, insurrection posed. But there's also this other problem, which is that they, that if you're a conservative right now, you are watching a political and cultural landscape shift rather dramatically to uh, not outright censorship, but making it very uncomfortable to hold beliefs that aren't in the Democratic majority right now. And that includes people who, I mean, there is a real, and it's not a, it's not paranoid, for someone who voted for Donald Trump but thinks January 6th was a nightmare to feel kind of like they shouldn't admit that they voted even for Donald Trump. They might be Republicans, you know, kind of stalwart Republicans who always vote on our ticket. Um, there is a weird mood shift happening, and you see it from certainly from the progressive left in denunciations. You know, we have to expel from Congress anyone who you know vote, voted this way or that way. We have to put people on the no-fly list if they voted this way or that way. There's a mood right now that I hope is just reactionary and cools down, but but could also... Elevate the kind of McCarthy courting Trump and the QAnon voter types. Uh, it's going to encourage that mood, not not quell it.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a there's a terrible feedback loop at work here, right? Because the more mm-hmm. the more they can tie uh, anyone anywhere near conservatives or the right to um, something um, that they can call incitement um, and and crack down, the more that will drive uh, conservatives right. over to the yeah. fringes. the More yeah. that, that will then then kick kick off, trigger the um, crackdown and so on. It's a very bad place to be in.
1: AOC accused Senator Ted Cruz of trying to have her killed. She put that out on Twitter. Murder. Her many, many yeah. Said, you tried murder. to have me murdered. You tried to murder me. Yes. And she's not, that's not hyperbole. That's the way she communicates to her followers. Um, that's a concerning development. The whole, that whole interaction is, I think, encapsulates where we're going in the wrong direction with a lot of this.
0: Yeah. And it puts you, as you said, it puts, it puts one in an incredibly difficult and, you know, position like threading certain needles, because on the one hand, I do think Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley were disgustingly irresponsible in their game playing. Viability and validity of the election. And on the other hand, she cannot be allowed to get away with the idea that he attempted to murder her. Like this is, this is where everything goes haywire. And people are, my just saying that puts me in a distinct minority of people in the United States who seem unable to hold these two positions in their head at the same time. And yet, uh, if we can't hold those views in our head at the same time, uh, The the political polarization or the you know the extreme polarization is only going to get worse. Like thirty years ago, that would have been a gimme. You can't say that about Ted Cruz. What do you? I mean, how go? You apologize now? That's not right. You can't say that. And yet, not only is she going to say it, she's going to get she's be rewarded for it. Just as in an odd way, Marjorie Taylor Greene is getting rewarded for being a crazy person. Um she is now becoming one of the most famous politicians in America from, uh, from having been an obscure, you know, uh, crazy person harassing, you know, uh, admittedly obnoxious 17, 18 year old kids as they walk around. Like she, you know, she deserves to, you know, be in, be in a, in a padded cell. And yet here she is kind of becoming a face of the Republican party. And if 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 the number one person in the House can't see clear to saying, as Republicans said just a couple of years ago of Steve King, this person has nothing in common with the rest of us. We are not letting him have committee assignments. We are not letting him get anywhere near, uh, you know, sort of the maintenance and order of power uh, to the extent that we have the ability to do that. Where's that going on with her? He Kevin Grove is like, I'm gonna have a conversation. You're gonna have a conversation with her about talking about how the Rothschild family is shooting space lasers to cause fires in California. Oh, she's an allo Semit- Aside from being aloe she's evil. That is evil, anti-Semitic filth, and and you know, and uh uh, if I if I were to see Kevin McCarthy in the next week, I would push him against a wall and say, "You are a coward and a slime bucket. You trash, or say that you have real problems with Liz Cheney, and you can't and you can't for my sake denounce the the idea that Jews are setting fires in California with their magical lasers. What kind of a man are you?" What kind of a what kind of a
3: man are you? Are you even a man? is what I, I mean would. I just I, I completely share that sentiment. nevertheless, um, you know being negative partisanship being what it is, it's not as though we, we have Democrats moderating their rhetoric, as you said, it's not just uh, AOC. It's you know people like Nancy Pelosi who described this crazy person who does not belong in the House to, uh, as I view it as quote the enemy. the enemy. Is within the House of Representatives," she said of Marjorie Taylor Greene, and, and alluding to various other members of the Republican Conference who have behaved rather contemptibly uh, and tried to intimidate their fellow colleagues with, you know, bringing weapons into the building and and making a menace of themselves. Um, they deserve to be criticized for it. But the Speaker of the House saying the members of this body constitute the enemy,
1: and it's not the first is, is,
3: a, is a a real
1: uh,
3: it. it, it changes the terms of engagement here and expands the rules of engagement in a way that is very unhealthy.
1: Well, and it's not the first time she's used that kind of framing. That's actually in the last year. She's that's come up on a few occasions. Um, and it is it's short term. She's getting a good, huge she gets huge political payback. She got a lot of attention for that remark, like she has about previous remarks and that with that tenor. But long term, she's actually undermining her own power because that's corrosive to the institution. What you say when you're the leader of an institution and a crazy person is part of your institution and you really don't have the power to fire them is to say this is these are all the rules. And if you don't follow them, you'll be censured. You'll be this. You'll be that. But you don't call them your enemy because she's technically a fellow citizen who has every as much right to be in that in that chamber as, as Nancy Pelosi herself does. You can dislike her views, you can dislike everything she stands for, but she is not your enemy. she is your political opponent. And so treating political opponents as mortal enemies is how we got into this mess and right. I think I is, it is dangerous. No it's right
0: you know and the other way that we got into this mess as you know is through the uh, through the involvement of social media and uh, and the fact that we are tracked online, by our internet service providers to funnel information to us that closes and narrows our perceptions, feeding us whatever it is that we th- they think we want to see and hear and um, and and helping to close off the American mind. And did you even have a choice in that internet service provider? You didn't. Because most of us have very little choice. These are semi-official monopolies that use their monopoly power to take advantage of customers um, and they log your activity and they sell the data to other big tech companies or advertisers that's why to prevent isps from seeing my internet activity i protect all my devices with expressvpn the simple app for your computer or smartphone that encrypts all your network data and tunnels it through a secure vpn server so that your isp cannot see any of your activity just think about how much of your life is on the internet sadly every site you visit video you watch, message you send gets tracked by ISPs or other tech giants who then sell your information for profit. So ExpressVPN is the best way to hide your online activity from your ISP. Download the app, tap one button on your device, you're protected. And ExpressVPN does all this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET and Wired. So stop handing over your personal data to ISPs and other tech giants who mine your activity and sell off your information. Protect yourself with the VPN. I trust to keep me private online. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash commentary to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary right now to learn more. So guys, yesterday we did uh, 20 minutes uh, on, on the, uh, on the uh, uh, GameStop uh, subject. And um, I just want to repeat... Because we got some blowback online that we that we we didn't know we were talking about, and we were having the same conversation that everybody else was having, who didn't know what they were. But there does seem to be a divide between people who say the market will work. This is just another way that the market works. The market functions, and uh, and uh, it's really funny to see how people are saying that uh, it's not. This is a distortion of the market. Uh, l- particularly billionaires who play these games and then complain that uh, terrible things are happening. And man, did some billionaires stick their foot in it yesterday. Leon Cooperman, the hedge fund guy went on with Andrew Ross Sorkin and said things like all these people using their stimulus checks to screw around with the market. Like how, what? uh, uh." It's like, you know, if you want to make sure that mobs come and burn your house down and string you up upside down from a tree, Leon Cooperman, you will you will go on TV again. Like, uh, you know, sometimes games like this and the things that happen here do expose the soft underbelly of the of more despicable elements of, you know, vulture capitalism and all that. And that very much is something that I think uh, was, was in evidence here. But I do, but I just want to say one thing, which is that my concern here, uh, illiterate though I may be, is is it literally goes to the idea that the people who have been uh, stirred and inspired to start a fooling around in the options market, uh, you know, using uh, using a sort of a crowdsourced website to to play this game, um, they are the ones that individual people who ha- who who can ill afford to lose this money are the ones who are going to end up holding the bag. It's not very rich people who are it looks like it's great because they're funny to them because one hedge fund may, you know, go belly up Melvin Capital or not uh, based on this play. But tens of thousands of people are going to get hurt when the market crashes um, as it inevitably will. And they're not able to get out in time. And that's my, that's, that's where. I just want to
3: add that when you say that this, person going on television saying inflammatory things should watch his mouth, in part because a mob could come and burn his house down. And it's not an unthinkable prospect. The problem is not with the guy saying inflammatory things on television. The problem is with the mob.
0: I don't agree. Can I explain why? Very wealthy people in the United... There is a social compact in the United States that has been falling apart, which is if you are the sort of person who ends up making billions of dollars, there are things that you were supposed to do to make, to live up to your side of the social contract. You pay your taxes, you do this, you do that. You're supposed to be charitable and elemasonary to help others with your gains, uh, in part because the, the country that you live in uh, has done you such a service by allowing this, whereas other countries do not allow it, number one. And number two... You are not supposed to walk around going, "Nah, nah, I'm rich and you're not," because the mob may not shouldn't go around and string you up by your heels. But um, a world in which uh, the people who are uncommonly gifted by chance, circumstance, their own hard work, and all of that, it is they are obliged for the purposes of social peace and the social compact to maintain a certain degree of decorum, and not to walk around lording their gains over other people. That is how you get revolutionary fervor To destroy wealth.
1: Okay, but but okay, I'm sorry, but I have to butt in to say one thing. Bernie freaking Sanders. This guy's a multimillionaire and he spends his entire political career attacking wealth. And I think, and if you've noticed, there's quite a shift in the rhetoric of people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Now they rail against billionaires with a B. That's because most of them are millionaires themselves. So I think there's it's more complicated. I agree that that's the ideal. But the reason someone constructed a makeshift guillotine in front of Jeff Bezos' house, the house he owns here in Washington, D.C., with a kill the rich placard over the summer, this is an Antifa move, they did this a couple of times, is that it, there's something enervating about the idea that the problem is the billionaires. But I'm with Noah. The problem is, is the mob that thinks that the destruction of the billionaire will solve the problem that they're so angry about. At the I don't think point. it's going to solve non-negotiable. the problem.
3: No, non negotiable. And we don't actually know what this guy's philanthropic giving is, but it doesn't even matter because his capacity to engage with the market and provide a service and, uh, and um, generate the kind of capital that produces investments, which produces jobs, which produces economic growth. That's his contribution. Okay. Yeah. Hey, 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 sorry.
2: Look, I think there's been a change um, in, in, the, in the mindset in, in, among Americans, um, uh, Wall Street as a, as a sort of cultural um, symbol and uh, uh, the, the Stone movie and Gecko and all that stuff, um, that's been around for a very long time. This is not, that's not what has changed. Um, that, that used to inspire a, a, a sort of an emulation, right? In, in America, the idea wasn't, oh, they're rich, let's get a mob. Um to tear them down, it was uh, I want that. If that guy can get that, I want right. that. Um, and that is that is the difference. You know, this is something I discussed with my friends. I don't i'm I'm forty nine and I don't know who remembers this exactly, but um, when I was a kid, teenagers had posters um that were like luxury cars uh, on their walls, you know. Um, and that's sort of not, I think, the way it is now, right? There's something. You're, there's something. There's an understanding, or there's a. There's already a demonization of um, a certain type of materialism. That,
0: conspicuous consumption.
2: conspicuous consumption. Now um, that has, I think, changed uh, people's attitudes toward this entirely.
0: Well, I was just going to say one thing, which is at the beginning of the twentieth century, um, when uh, the uh, the the, fir- the creation of the first real wealth class in the United States had taken place over the previous 25 years. Um, and we got to the point where one person, J.P. Morgan, controlled 2% of the U.S. economy and personally and individually uh, inserted himself at a moment to save the United States from going into a deep recession uh, through his own personal ministrations, And... Uh, various uh, there were various political responses to this behavior the progressive movement was largely a response to the rise of this uh pseudo oligarchic class of of rich people and they almost in a kind of conspiracy of silence decided to change their cultural behavior the ultra the rockefellers the carnegies Um, The Morgans, all of them, they stopped being too public. They moved out of cities into countries and built large hedgerows around their houses. They created foundations and pumped money into the public wheel building museums. And hospitals, and this, and that, and the other thing. They started public. They had p- publicists who said things like they gave their kids a dime allowance every week in order to teach them the importance of thrift. They started dressing down in old clothing and stuff like that. Why did they do this? Because there was something about their behavior that offent- that they had come to understand was actually dangerous to them, to their wealth, and was somehow offensive to the American myth of social leveling and all of that. And that was something that happened that kind of hit pause on the, kill the malefactors of great wealth, which of course was the phrase that helped Teddy Kennedy, Teddy Roosevelt become um, a major American political figure. He, his purpose was as a member of this class to go after the malefactors of great wealth. And it was up to them to stop seeming like malefactors. And Leon Cooperman yesterday on CNBC seemed like a malefactor of great wealth saying, I got up here and you can't because you're just living off the government teat and using your government check to screw around in my business. Well, good, fine. You go ahead. Go ahead and see see what happens to your tax rates over the next 10 years. If you or people like you, go on like this, because this is not, you know, whether or not, Noah, you're right, that he is uh, helping uh, contribute to the efficiency of markets or not, his personal conduct has an outsized effect on the way people understand whether wealth creation, wealth promotion, all of this is good or bad. And if the public decides- disagree
3: with in that statement, okay. what's, what's disagreeable isn't that there's the potential for a legislative effort to change the marginal tax rates around, even though they're confiscatory. The threat here is from mob action in the street. No, streets. no, no. You, you misunderstand. That's not unthinkable. and that's, I, that's, I, I, unthinkable. I, and that's have, actually what we and that's what I've said yesterday on this podcast. And maintain that the, the psychology on display here from some very vocal, albeit a minority, people who were getting in on this bubble was not that they wanted a return on investment. The only return on investment they wanted to generate was chaos and meeting out pain. And okay, that's a really okay. scary prospect when it's abroad.
0: Okay, but I I was actually, when I said they could string him up, you know, by his, uh, you know, the mom could come and string him up by his heels, that was a metaphor for a 90% tax rate. Well, I meant it as a metaphor. (laughs) You may not have meant it, and they may not have meant it as a metaphor. And in fact, it is a metaphor because the whole point was that this was a trading places play, right? What is the end of trading places? It's Eddie Murphy and, and Dan Aykroyd saying, I made a bet, I made a bet that we could make you poor and i you know i won the bet here's you know can i have my dollar please like that their their revenge against the against the dukes was that they could get rich and make the dukes poor at the same time well leon cooperman can be made poor
1: Okay, but if but if, if not, not careful. but if nine eleven killed irony for a little while, <laughs> then twenty twenty definitely killed the metaphor. Right? We have to be very careful okay. because what we think is a metaphor is taken quite literally by angry people Fair in enough. a Reddit chat room.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, and with that, I will I will spend the weekend uh, pondering uh, the misuse of metaphor and and the end of metaphor uh, and the and the and the possible return of irony in the end of metaphor. Uh, please have a great weekend uh, we'll see you on Monday for Abe, Christina, Noah I'm John Podhoritz. keep the candle burning